please be seated. No, don't sit. Yeah, that got that wrong. Don't be seated. Uh, open up your Bibles, please, to Ro- uh, Romans. I haven't preached since Romans. Um, Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. For uh, context, we're going to be, begin in verse 1. So Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all uh, the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Please be seated. I'm excited that in the coming week we have VBS. Uh, what a great time it'll be for us to, uh, to have children, uh, very loud and rambunctious and wild, uh, hopefully having fun, but most importantly, that they will hear the good news of the gospel. And as Casey has said many times, part of the good news of the gospel, there has to be the bad news of the gospel, and that is that we are sinners. We have rebelled against a holy God, and if we believe what scripture says, then the wages, what we have earned for ourselves for that sin, is death. So as we continue in the book of Matthew, it may be easy for us to look at some of these stories and see and be reminded of the stories we learned maybe in Sunday school or VBS, or I'm sure if you're a parent, you probably still have a Jesus storybook Bible. These are stories that most of us know by heart. Maybe not word for word, but we can sit down and tell our children the Christmas story. We can talk about John the Baptist. We can talk about Jesus performing miracles and healing. But it's my prayer today that as we look at this, we look at the complex beauty that we actually have in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you know me very well, I'm I'm a big history nerd. Uh, You really can't go anywhere with me without hearing something about some type of history, Uh, whether we're going on mission trips, uh, Casey can tell you that one. Uh, family vacations, business travel. I like to know where I'm going. I like to know what's happened in these places. But the question comes back that we have to look at of why do we know that these things are true? How can we know that these things are true? 
How is it that we learn what has happened in the past? And it seems like such a simple answer, and it really is a simple answer. We only know because of eyewitness testimony, and that's exactly what we have in the gospel. You'll hear apologists all day long ask the question, how, how do you know George Washington was the first president of the United States? We have eyewitness testimony that he was. How do we know that Abraham Lincoln gave the Emancipation Proclamation on January 1st in 1863? We have eyewitness testimony. And this is just American history that's only 200 some odd years old. With Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have a much more ancient history. And yet, we can use the same way that we do history today. We have eyewitness testimony to these things. Now, many people will look at the Bible and say, well, you can't trust that testimony, even though you have 66 books, uh, a lot of history, poetry, you have third party uh, things that corroborate what, what the Bible says. You have ancient historians that would look and say the history, the maps, the, the idea of where things were at the time periods are true. But because there is something supernatural in it, we cannot trust this history. And you don't have to go far to find the supernatural. We just start with where we've been in Matthew so far. You start with a virgin birth and God putting on flesh and coming to earth. So I hope that as we go through this, we don't treat this as just stories that we already know, but we can see God's sovereignty in bringing about Christ, providing our only hope in life and death. The miracles that occurred, the way that it was taught, the fact that 2,000 some odd years ago, a fire was lit and we're here today still talking about it. So we've seen so far the genealogy of Christ. We've, we've read the Christmas story. We've heard it from the wise men. We've seen the flight to Egypt. We've seen Jesus's early life. And today we, we have our second week here with John the Baptist. So we know these stories. We know what's going to happen. But I want us to think today, and it's a very simple message today, to remind ourselves that as we look at Scripture, this is God's revelation of himself. What we're reading is the story of Christ's life, his birth, his death, his resurrection. We're seeing the outpouring of a sovereign God working all things together for good. What we're not seeing is a God that reacts to things that are happening. We get to see the eyewitness accounts of our Lord and Savior. So we have to decide every time we pick up the Gospels, is this just a nice story that we read our children? Or is this truly our only hope in life and death? Is it truly the power of God unto salvation? If it's the latter, then it requires action on our part. It requires a response. So let's jump into our text today. We begin in verse 7, when John the Baptist, as he's out preaching, 
calling people to repentance, we see the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism. Now, we don't know the exact reason why, but you can imagine why were the Pharisees coming. Depending on your translation, some, some translations say that the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to his baptism. Others say that they came for his baptism. But I don't think it matters either way because you can see John's response to know what he believed the heart of the Pharisees and the Sadducees were with this. He said to them, literally, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from, flee from the wrath to come? We have to remember that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were the elite of the elite of the religious Jews. The Sadducees was the smaller of the two group. They believed that the law of Moses was the supreme authority over all life. However, they scorned any religious practice that was not found directly in the law of Moses. They cared, they cared little for organized religion. They cared little for doctrine. They denied the, the existence of uh, the supernatural, things like angels and resurrection or life after death. Anything supernatural, they were, would be willing to deny and fight about. They were usually the wealthiest of the wealthy of the Jews, often running all of the money exchanges in the temple. Think back to the story of Jesus overturning the tables. He overturned the Sadducees' tables in the temple. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were the religious of the religious that found adherence to strict biblical law over and above the actual spiritual meaning of those laws. They, they desired to be seen obeying the law. They could be found in about every major city. They'd always be found in the major synagogues. They made it a point to be noticed and would seek to be admired because of their uh, religious piety. Matthew would write later in chapter 23 of his gospel that the Pharisees do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make, uh, they make broad, in their, uh, they make their, uh, I can't pronounce this word, uh, someone smarter than me, what is it? Matt, come on, help me out. I will skip it. Something they were wearing. They, they make them broad and their fringes long, and they love a place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings uh, in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. So these two major groups come to either be baptized and be seen doing it, or they came to somewhat make fun of what John was doing and report back to Jewish authorities. John's response, this, this brood of vipers, literally meaning you offspring of serpents, you hypocrites, who told you that you were going to escape judgment? I believe that they desired to be baptized, but they had no true desire to repent of their sins. So John urges them in, in verse 8, he urges them saying, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In Luke, we have a little bit more detail in Luke's parallel account of this story. Uh, in Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 9, it says, Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not, uh, that, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowd asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? 
And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money, extort money from anyone by threats of false accusations and be content with your wages. What John is pointing out here is you can come and be baptized. You can, you can come and do this. But unless there is a response in your life, a change in your life, then it does you no good. This is somewhat what James argues for in James chapter 2, when it says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things that they need for their body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But some will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one and you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And remember John's message here the whole time. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Not come and be baptized. Repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is not some new message. John is not coming out with a, a new line of religious thinking here. This is something that the Jewish people have heard for thousands and thousands of years. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel is called out of their times of disobedience, and they're urged repeatedly to return to the Lord. In Ezekiel, it says, when the righteous turns from his right, uh, righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. And when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is just and right, he shall live by this. Sounds an awful lot like repentance. And Hosea, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls and bows, uh, bows of our lips. When Jonah was sent to the wicked town of Nineveh, what happened when they repented? When God saw what they did, how they turned away from their evil, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Isaiah, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead for the widow's causes. This was not some revolutionary idea, just it is not some revolutionary idea today. John had a simple message. Repent and believe. Confess your sins, turn from them, and bear the fruit of true repentance. John continues in verse 9. It says, And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. This had to be somewhat shocking for the Jews because they put a lot of stock into their genealogy, into the fact that they were children of Abraham. But here we have John saying, don't, don't do this. I, look, look at Abraham's life himself. Abraham wasn't justified because he was Abraham. In Genesis 15, it says of Abraham, and he believed the Lord, and he counted it 
uh, to him as righteousness. His faith justified him before the Lord. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. If Abraham himself were not justified by being Abraham, how much more so would the children of Abraham not be justified because they are children of Abraham? not a new message. Only by God's grace, only through faith can we be saved. So what is John out there in the doing, out there in the wilderness doing? He's calling people to repent and believe over and over and over again. You hopefully hear that from Casey and I over and over and over again. Repent and believe. But why repeat this message so much? Is it really that important? John goes on saying, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You see a binary situation here. A one or a zero, a yes or a no. Even now the axe is laid to the tree There's one thing that happens if we don't bear good fruit. We're taken down, we're thrown in the fire. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now please, let's not get confused as some do that there is some type of other baptism um, some, some read this fire as possibly speaking in tongues, and that's how you really show you're saved. That is not what John is saying here. He's saying that there is one coming in Christ who has the ability to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and to refine you in a cleansing fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Again, this binary one or zero, this yes or no. This cleansing fire will either cleanse you through sanctification, will justify you by faith in Christ, or it will burn you away as useless chaff. John is saying this message over and over and over again because the Messiah had come. The Savior of the world was in the world, and judgment is on its way. Look at his warning. Even even now, says John, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. You either bear good fruit or you don't. This should have been a joyous thing for Israel. They have spent thousands of years being promised a Messiah, promised a Savior, 
And now here's John, chosen for the task before the foundation of the world, created by God for the purpose of pointing to the Messiah when he comes, saying the Messiah is here. Repent and believe. We can go back many places. I listed two here. We can go back to Joel. Joel chapter 2, 28. In prophecy it says, And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and Jerusalem there shall be those who escape. As the Lord has said, among those survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Thousands of years before this, and now you have John the Baptist saying he's here. Repent and believe. In Ezekiel, prophet wrote, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from your uncleanliness, and from your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, a new spirit, and I will put it within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And here we have John. Repent and believe. The Messiah is finally here. We can see even in these, just these few verses, John had a sense of urgency in what he was preaching. Look, look again at verse 12 of our text. You, you can see his urgency. The Lord's winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Repent and believe because the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe because there is no middle ground. You are the wheat or you are the chaff. Plain and simple. Repent and believe, bear good fruit so that we are not thrown in the fire. But here's the thing that so many people want to avoid talking about, and pulpits today don't, pastors and pulpits sometimes don't want to talk about it. We don't make ourselves the wheat. We are already the chaff. Paul writes in Romans 3, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. But in Christ we have a solution to that. Repent and believe for he will be baptized with the Holy Spirit and a cleansing fire. You will be justified. Not through our own holiness, not through our own righteousness, but through Christ and Christ alone. Now, a lot of people would listen to a sermon like this and say, that's a pretty harsh sermon. We shouldn't preach like that. And I, I disagree with that we shouldn't preach like that, but I will agree that it is a pretty harsh sermon. But there's a reason for it, and there's a reason that we should preach it to ourselves, to our churches, to our children, 
to those that we come in the streets with because it is literally the difference between life and death. It's the difference between forgiveness of sins and condemnation. If you, if you listen to a lot of other churches in the area or you read about them, and I'm not going to point any out in particular, but how often do you hear things like, well, you know, we just don't really want to preach about sin. We don't, want it, we don't want people to think that they're bad. We want the people to think that they're, that they're special. We want to give vain flatteries. We want to tell them that their sin isn't as bad as other people's sin, so they're okay. People don't want to think about what happen after, happens after we die. People want what they want now. They want to be comfortable. They want to feel good about themselves. They want to be healthy. They want to be wealthy. They want all of these things now. And where are we when the church will not preach about sin? What is the good news if there's not the bad news? Why would we want a Savior if we don't understand our need for a Savior? Some people will come back and say, well, you really should only just talk about God's love. You leave out about half the Bible if you talk just about God's love. People want to create for themselves a God. You'll hear them say things like, oh, their God would never be angry at you. God would never punish someone for something as, as simple as sin. Uh, you know, we were, we were made this way. Anything, any, anything that we've done wrong was actually just God not being perfect. I will tell you, if that's what you want to hear, you can walk out these doors and find just about any church that will tell you exactly what, to want, exactly what you want to hear. You want to feel good about yourself for a time, go for it. But as John did, there is a reason that we preach with urgency. Because there is a time coming when we will stand before a holy God, a righteous God, a God whose expectation of us is perfection. And we will be judged and will be held account for our sin. This is why we desperately need the gospel. We need the gospel because God is holy and righteous. We need the gospel because God cannot and will not abide sin. We need the gospel because man has fallen short of God's standard of perfection. We need the gospel because we are separated from God in our sin. And there is not a thing that you and I can do about it. Not one thing. But how beautiful is the good news when you understand the depth and depravity of man. Paul understood this in Ephesians 2 when he, he wrote, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you were saved. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
And this is not of your own doing, it's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. How important is that simple message? Repent and believe. Recognize your sins, confess them, turn away from them. Now, you, you may hear that and say, well, Blake, you just said there's nothing you could do. There's not. Even that God gives us the ability to do, to convict us of our sins, to turn from our sin to Christ. He, get, he grants us the belief in Christ. Has that message changed since John preached it before Christ was baptized. I sure hope not. I hope it's the message that we preach every week. I hope it's the message that you tell your kids before they go to bed. I hope it's the message that you tell yourself first thing in the morning when you wake up. I'm reminded of a quote from Charles Spurgeon. And it was, it was a very simple very simple thing. It said, every single Christian is either a missionary or they're an imposter. It is our job to go out in the world and share the good news of the gospel. To call others to repent and believe. So I'd ask you this morning, do you share the gospel? Is your sharing of the gospel more important than your comfort or more important than risking possibly embarrassing yourself in front of friends or neighbors or co-workers? Do you feel the urgency and the need in the world for the gospel? Can you look at those around you and say, just as John said, even now they need the gospel? Even now, there are people that are dying in their sins without Christ. Along those same lines, Spurgeon also wrote that if, if there ever existed only one man or one woman who, need, who did not love <clears throat> the Savior, <clears throat> excuse me, there ever existed only one man or woman that did not love the Savior, and if that person lived among the wilds of Siberia, and if it were necessary that millions of believers all over the face of the earth should journey there, and every one of them could plead with him to come to Jesus before that person could be converted, it'd be well worth the zeal, the labor, the expense. If we had to preach to thousands year after year after year and never rescue but one soul, that one soul would be our full reward for our labor. For a soul is a countless price. So I'd urge you this morning, if you have not placed your faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation, I would beg you, repent and believe. If you need to understand that better, come see me, come see Casey, come see any of the people you've seen on the stage today, 
And let's have that conversation because even now, the ax is laid at the tree. If you are a believer, do we have that same urgency to go out and share the gospel? And if not, why not? So let us be serious about equipping each other within this church for the work of ministry. Let's be serious about preaching the gospel with urgency. Because again, you are talking about life and death. And there is no middle ground in it. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, for the sweet news of the gospel, Lord, for the, for the hope that we have um, through your son. Lord, we, we confess we are, we are sinners. Um, we have nothing, nothing to offer, Lord. But you and your sovereignty and your wisdom and your love for um, your people and your desire for your glory to be known, Lord. Call some to believe it. Call some to be convicted of their sin, to repent, to take hold of Christ's righteousness and worship you. Or as we continue uh, in song this morning uh, and as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, I just pray that, um, that it would be pleasing to you, that this time would be edifying for all of us. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.